Now take your Bible and turn to the book of Mark. All right. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Look at verse 20. And straightway he left them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. I mean, hey, follow me. Sure, sure. Drop everything. Bye, Dad. Bye, Mom. Go. Some people have to, well, let me pray about this. Well, wait a minute. It was the Lord that asked you. Well, I have to ask the Lord if it's His will. It was the Lord that told you. Do what God says do. Delayed obedience is what? Delayed obedience is disobedience. Well, I'm going to dedicate my life to the Lord someday. You can't plan that. All you have is now. So either you dedicate your life now, you don't know if you will later. You can't plan you will later because you don't know what kind of a frame of mind you're going to be. If you're going to be in that, later on, I'm going to really be in a good frame of mind. Well, if it's so good later, why not now? So go ahead and serve the Lord now immediately. Also, you'll find out there's a lot of planning that God goes through. So here's Jesus Christ coming on the scene. Now, he's already been baptized. And he wasn't baptized because he was a sinner. He didn't have any sins to wash away. So that shows you that baptism doesn't wash away your sin. Why? Jesus got baptized. He didn't have any. He couldn't wash away his sins. And Jesus got baptized, and um, he um, hadn't done anything wrong. So why did he have to get baptized? See, he was the one, as a man, given a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. This is why he came. He was beginning his ministry, and his whole ministry is about he came to die. Because you remember, that is what baptism was a picture of. Christ is going to the cross. He's going to die, be buried, come back again from the dead. And so this is what my ministry is about. And he says, we have to do that which is right. Now, there's other things we can get into a whole sermon, but not, not right now. And Jesus then, the very next verse says in chapter 4 and verse 1, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then when he got through with that, he comes down, and now he's going to build a cabinet. He's going to get his staff together. Anytime you want to do anything, you have to build a staff. You've got to try to find workers, people that can do certain jobs. If you don't, you can do the work of 10 men, or you can get 10 men to help do the work. Now, which way do you think you'll last the longest? This is why so many people get burnt out, because they do all the work. Get people to do the work. See, the job of the preacher is supposed to get you to do the job, to do the work. We are supposed to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So we got a lot of work to do. All right, look there also in chapter 3. Look in chapter 3. Just turn your page over there. Chapter 3, and you'll notice in verse 13. And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And you ought to underline this word, ordain. Now this is their an ordination service. Now see, they had been followers, but now he wants these people to commit themselves to doing what he wants them to do. Because there was a ministry. There was things he was going to do. There was places they were going to go. And he's going to send them out two by twos. And the power he was going to give to them. They could do all kinds of things. And do miracles and cast out devils and all kinds of stuff. And they would go to the whole city of the, the whole country of Israel. And this is what he gave them to do. So 
in verse 13, and excuse me, verse 14, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. Now, ordaining them to serve him is not salvation. Now, we know that Judas was one of these, and he got to do the same thing that everybody else did. He even got to be the secretary, the financial secretary. And what did he do that was so bad as a financial secretary? The Bible says he bore out what was put in. I wonder what that means. Is it called embezzlement, something like that? In other words, he was taking money out while others were putting money in. Now, isn't it a shame that the Lord didn't know he was going to do that? <clears throat> that he did that. But that greed, see, when you don't solve a problem, it gets worse. Did it get worse by the time his ministry was over? Remember, he was willing to deny Jesus, to sell him, betray him. For how much? 30 pieces of silver? Is that what it was? Now, why? But see, because greed gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. It always gets worse. Any little thing you let go in your life will get worse and worse. You see, you ever heard people say, you, you just make it a mountain out of a molehill. Well, what's a molehill? What dirt? What's a mountain? More dirt. You just add, keep adding more dirt on it. And that's what happens in Christians' lives, is that little things become big things. And I used the illustration just not long ago, but when I was in Colorado, I loved to go mountain climbing. Not because I loved to climb the mountains, but I was looking for an elk. <laughs> I was looking for a deer. I just didn't want to do it just for the exercise, though I got a lot of it. But it wasn't the big boulders that caused you to have a problem. It was all those loose gravel on the side of the hill. It's the loose gravel that gets under your foot that causes you to slip and slide. That's why you're going to fall. You're not going to fall because of big things in your life. You're going to fall because of little things you let go. And those little things became bigger things. Deal with little things in your life. There's a scripture that talks about the, the little foxes spoil the vine. The little foxes spoil the vines. And so there's little things in your life that can destroy you. But now notice what he says here in verse 16. Oh, excuse me, verse 15 says, And to have power to heal sicknesses, cast out devils. Now, they weren't given the power to save anybody. But they had power to do certain things. They were to preach about Christ is coming and so forth and to get things straight in your life. He was coming. In verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James. Now, you'll notice there's some, you know, brothers in this thing here. There's Peter and James and John. And it says um, also they were called the sons of thunder. Uh, that means they probably had a problem with their temper. In verse 18, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. He knows he named him last. I don't know why. Which also betrayed him that they went into a house. So these are the ones that he had chosen. And they were the ones that got to be with him and close to him. But even though you have some that get close, there were a few out of that. They got a little closer, Peter, James, and John. And so they got to see and enjoy some things that some of the others weren't a part of. 
See, how close you get to the Lord depends upon you. I'm so glad that somebody else can't keep me from getting close to the Lord. The Lord says, I'm sorry, Yankee, I've already got uh, a half a million people and uh, you're half a million and one and I, I don't have any more room for you. God is not a respecter of person. Wait a minute. I like it knowing that God doesn't love anybody in this world more than he loves me. Aren't you glad that nobody in this world, God doesn't love anybody in this whole world more than he loves you? Don't you like that? But he doesn't love you any more than he does anybody else. I didn't like that last half, but I know it's the truth. God so loved the world. He loves all of us. But the thing is, is how close you get to the Lord depends upon how, how much you love him. How close do you want to get to the Lord? Nobody can make you dedicate your life to the Lord. No one can make you be a disciple. You can be a child of God and never serve God. Because you and I, we're not going to heaven because we love God. We're going to heaven because he loved us. Now, being used by the Lord, the Bible says, you have nothing. You can do nothing without love. So, our service to the Lord should be a reflection of our love for Him. Because we love Him. He kind of put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, we are constrained. For the love of Christ constraineth us, or motivates us. Because we thus judge. That if one died for all then all were dead. So that they which live should not henceforth from now on live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them. So we have a reason, a motive for serving God. We should love him because he first loved us. But if you don't love him, it doesn't annul the promise that he made because he did not save you conditional upon you loving me back, you serving me. There was no contingencies, and it was totally free. But now that we have eternal life, and we know we're going to heaven, the message of salvation, knowing that I don't have to serve God, <laughs> made me want to do it. It's like somebody saying, you know, Yankee, you can't jump over that ditch. Guess what? i got to try. i got to see if I can jump over that ditch. You don't have to do that. Well, I'm going to then. I serve the Lord because I want to. I'm so glad I don't do it because I, well, I have to do it. No, I want to do it. God gave me a good warner, so I like that. But anyway, you have those mentioned right here in the Scriptures. Now, take your Bible and turn to the book of John. The Gospel of John. Now, those are only the preliminary remarks now we're back to John, where we're supposed to start with in the first place. Jesus came along, John baptized him, and John said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. There were two guys that were there, and they heard him say that. So in verse 35, again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and Jesus, and looking unto Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So, we're kind of rehearsing that when John the Baptist said that yesterday, these two disciples, they heard him say that. When he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And verse 37, And the two disciples heard him speak. They followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, been interpreted, Master. 
Where dwellest thou? He said unto them, Come and see. And so he went to the Holiday Inn. I'd like to know where he stayed. He says, The birds have their nests and the foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Come and see where I'm staying. <laughs> but anyway, we know he spent a lot of time at, uh, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha but, oh, in Bethany. But look what he says here in uh, verse 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother, Simon, and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which has been interpreted the Christ. This is how we know that the Messiah of the Old Testament and the Christ of the New Testament is the same one. So he is the Messiah, and he is Christ. Jesus is Jehovah in the Old Testament, and Jesus in the New Testament, same as Joshua. So Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. I wonder if it says that anywhere in the Bible. Well, lo and behold, right here in the book of John, chapter 1. And notice what else he says here in verse 42. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, this is where we get the idea of bringing people to Jesus. I've had people say, well, you're not supposed to try to persuade people. Just let the Lord do it all. I remember reading about King Agrippa. How that he made this statement when he was addressing the Apostle Paul. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Didn't he say that? Almost thou persuaded. But a hundred percent you're lost or you're a hundred percent saved. There is not no almost Christian or almost saved. Or, no, you're either saved or lost, 100%. I've had people say, well, I'm almost a Christian. I'm trying. I'm working on it. I'm doing my best. <laughs> You're either saved or lost. There is no in-between. There is no dirty grave. You know, you kind of fade out of the one and fade into the other one. No, there's none of that. If you believe it, done. Don't believe it, not done. You're saved or you're lost. You believe or you don't believe. So he says here, they brought him to Christ. So this is why we believe one of the greatest things we can ever do in life is to bring people to the Lord. And if you found something, I was teaching the other night, and, uh, and, and it was a simple little story about, you know, the four lepers in the Old Testament, Second Kings, where King Hadad of Syria, well, he, he was coming against Israel. And Elisha told his servants, his uh, don't you worry, because they came down into Israel to surround Elisha, and they were going to take him, because they couldn't figure out how he knew what the king was always thinking. And it says, what we're going to do, we're going to go down there and get him. So they surrounded the place. The servant gets up early in the morning, goes out here, and he sees the Syrian army. He goes back and says, Elisha, you want to see what's outside? And he says, don't worry about it. There's more with us than there are with them. And he says, Lord, open up his eyes that he can see. And the Lord opened up his eyes, and lo and behold, there was a, the whole army of God had him surrounded. Now, that was reality, but the servant couldn't see. But the man of God saw that. Saw what somebody else couldn't see. Now, that buddy, 
being able to be close to the Lord. No wonder he wasn't worried. Because he could see. But you and I, we're supposed to believe that God can protect us just as well. Even though you don't see how he's going to do it. So anyway, they all became blind. And then they went back to Syria after a while. And they could see. Well, it wasn't long. Here they are again. They came back to Samaria. Now Samaria was having a famine. This famine, people were starving to death. They didn't have anything to eat. And so, so we're going to get the cause of this problem. It's the man of God. It's his fault. Why he always gets blamed? It's his fault. And he says, tomorrow you're going to have so much food to eat, the price is going down. Right now it costs an awful lot to buy that old donkey head. But tomorrow it's going to be cheap. You're going to have so much food. So there was these four lepers outside the gate. They wouldn't let them inside. And they're sitting there talking to one another saying, you know, we're going to die. We're going to die. If we go into the city, they ain't got any food. We'll die there. If we stay here, we're going to die. Why don't we go over there to the Assyrians? Maybe they'll let us live. If we don't, we die, we die. Sounds good reasoning to me. So they went over there to the Syrian camp. When they got there, they saw nobody was there. But the tents were there. Horses were there. Food was all over the place. Silver and gold. Four lepers. And they go into this place. And they went into one tent, got some silver and gold, and they went out there and hid it. Ate till their bellies were full. And then they went to another tent. And after a while, they began to say to each other, you know, what we're doing is not right. We're not doing right. They're starving in there, and we're stuffed. They don't know. This is here. They don't know. They're dying. So they finally went back, and they told them. And they says, the Syrians are gone. We got food. And lo and behold, the king says, see there, I told you, it's a trap. They just want to get us outside of the, the walls of the city, and then they're going to take our city. It's a trap. I don't trust them. And somebody said, look, why don't you just send in, you know, some people to spy it out and see if it's true. They did, and lo and behold, it was just like they said. So you see, the truth of it is, is giving the gospel is nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We ought to be ashamed of ourselves sitting here gloating about all this wonderful food we get to eat. And there's people that are starving to death. And God says, share the bread. Tell the people. So that's why we're to get people to come to the bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's the bread that came down from heaven. And so this is what we're doing. We're just beggars. People that were lepers that God healed, telling somebody else how to find bread. One beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. And so notice what he says here before we quit. In verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, find a Philip, said unto him, Follow me. 
And Philip said of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, wasn't Bethsaida, uh, the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip findeth Nathanael, and said unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so he came and see, and lo and behold, he told him, he says, How do you know who I am? He says in verse 48, he says, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Mm. How would you like to know that there's somebody standing there that not only can see you from afar, but know what you're thinking? You see what he says in verse 25? And needeth not that any man should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And that's scary. Does God still know that today? Does he know who you are? Know what you think? Know when you're discouraged, when you're down, knows everything about you. I decided years ago, after I trusted Christ as my Savior, sitting there at Northside Baptist Church in Athens, Georgia, Virgil Ledward was speaking, and they had everybody sing the song, I Surrender All. Now, you don't do that to be saved. But as I stood there, and I was about right in that area, and I stood, and they were singing that song, and I began to have tears in my eyes. I'd been saved about a year and a half or something like that, or maybe two years. And I began to cry. Because if there's anything that I wanted, I wanted to serve the Lord. I wanted to follow Him. I don't know where He wants me to go. And buddy, I struggled for a couple of years too. But He began to work in my life. And I've been following Him ever since. I have no regrets. Just wish I'd have known it earlier. But it's the greatest thing in all the world. To know the Lord and to serve Him. There isn't anything greater. This hand represents you and me. The wallet represents sin. We all have sin on us. Now, God says that He loves us, but He hates our sin. For us to pay for sin is eternal separation from God in hell. But God loves everyone, wants everyone to go to heaven. But to go to heaven, you've got to be perfect. See, if we went to heaven the way we are right now, well, we would do in heaven what we do here. What? We lie here, we cheat here, adultery here, murder here. We would do all of that up there. God took all of us right now, just the way we are. We would do up there what we do here. And God said, uh-uh, you're not coming up here unless you're perfect. I got a perfect place, and I'm not messing it up. You messed it up down there, you're not messing it up up here. You got to be perfect to get there. You say, well, how is that possible? That's the problem. You have to be perfect. Not good, perfect. No sin can enter into heaven. So how are you going to get there? And all the religions of the world are trying to help you to be good enough that you'll make it. And it's impossible. You can't change what you are. God said that he loves us, hates our sin. We're guilty. Heaven is perfect. We're not. Therefore, we can't get in. God says you cannot earn eternal life. Your good works will not make you any better. If you was to pile on a thousand good works, it won't take away one bad sin. Even a little bitty one can't wash it away. How can I be just with God? That's a question that Job asked. How can a man be just with God? Just as if he had never sinned. Well, there's only one way. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Because we were in a predicament that we could not get out of. We had no hope. So he came into the world. He has no sin. He never did anything wrong. So because he loved us, he was willing to take all of our sins 
and pay for them. And this payment that he made would be put to our account if we would believe that he died, was buried, and rose again for us. When I was 18 years old, I heard this for the first time. I knew I was a sinner, and I could not save myself. But I heard that Christ paid for my sins. He died for me so that I wouldn't have to pay for my sins. And all I had to do was believe he did it for me, and he would put this payment to my account. I go to heaven because he just took all my sins and washed them all away. I have been made pure and holy in the eyes of God, not because of anything that I've done, but because of what he did for me. He gave me his righteousness. He took my sins, and when I believe it, he gives me his righteousness. Now, if he gave me his righteousness, that would make me as righteous as God. So now God says, you're good to go. So when I die here, my old sinful nature is in my flesh, in my body. So I'm going to leave it here, and it goes back to dust. I get to go to be with the Lord in heaven. I have been made pure and holy, set apart, sanctified, fit for the master's use. This is what God does for you. This is why it's so important for everyone to trust Christ as their Savior. Let's pray, shall we? Head bowed, eyes closed. No one looking around. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, would you just talk to the Lord and say something simple like this? Lord, I don't understand it all. i got questions. i got doubts. But I believe that when Christ died, I believe He died for me. And right now, the best I know how, I will trust Jesus Christ to take me to heaven whenever I die. And friend, if you will do that, God said He would save you. Save you right now, give you eternal life. And you can know that you're going to heaven whenever you die. Would you do that? I'm going to ask in just a moment you to raise your hand, but that's just to let me know. I want to have prayer for you. And if you're watching on internet, there's a, a little line there that just says, yes, I will trust Christ as my Savior. Why don't you just click that on it? That just lets us know that you trusted Christ as your Savior today. If you've already trusted the Lord, you don't need to do so. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, is there anyone at all here that say, preacher, that made sense to me, and I want to be certain of going to heaven when I die, and I will accept Jesus Christ as my Savior right now. Would you just slip your hand up quickly and put it right back down? Is anyone at all? Anyone at all? Our Father, we do thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for the opportunity you've given us to study your word. We pray that we'll take heed to these things and realize that we're living in a, yes, a world of crisis. It's always that way. We may never be able to change that. But Father, we know that what's coming down the road is, is something that all believers can look forward to, and that's the blessed hope. You're coming again for us. But if we should die in this old world, we know that to be absent from the bodies to be present with you. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid. Don't have to live in fear because we put our trust and our hope in you. Thank you so much for this church, the people that make it possible. For those that watch online, we just pray your will to be done in each person's life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.